Amen. Now we're going to do something different today than we normally do. We're usually marching right through just the next passage in Scripture, and the next passage in Matthew's Gospel is glorious. I can't wait to hit that. Actually, in two weeks from now, Lord willing. But what was brought to my mind as we were working through Matthew's Gospel, we talked a lot about the responsibility you all as our members have over your fellow members, that you really bear and wield an authority in this church, and yet that creates questions well, if the members have authority, what are the elders for, right? Who are these guys? What's that with? Who's really in charge around here? And that's what's prompted this question. So that's what we're going to turn to answer, because what we're going to see is that there is authority given to the elders, and there's authority given to the church, and those work together in concert, even though the authorities are not quite the same, nor do they work in quite the same way. I'll explain what I mean. But we see something of this mirrored even by the genius of our own country's founding, and just the wisdom there to create three distinct authoritative branches to our government. That is, each branch, the legislative, the executive, and the judicial branch, they all have an independent authority. And of course, how this works, then they're able to check and balance one another. Now, of course, this only plays out effectively. It only works as long as the legislative branch or congressmen actually work together and legislate. And if there are president and the Supreme Court don't make new laws on their own trying to legislate through executive order and judicial activism. Rather, each branch is designed to balance the other when they stay in their lane. Well, did you realize that Christ has authorized and even organized His church in a similar way? And I don't mean that there are then three equal branches of authority in the church. But as I noted, he's entrusted certain authority to the leadership, that is to the church's elders, but he's also authorized the church, the collective congregation, to have authority and a voice in the life of the church. Christ actually, he leads his church through the cooperation of these authorities together, the cooperation of the congregation with her elders. The elders have an authority to direct, we have an authority to lead been given to us by Jesus, while the church, the congregation collectively, has the authority to counter and confirm. And that way you see the elders have an active leadership, while the congregation has a reactionary or confirming one. And what we'll see is that that authority that's entrusted to you, the, the members, it's over two key areas in particular. Namely, as we've been talking through Matthew's gospel, it talks about charge of the membership that is namely discipline cases, but it also has charge of the purity of the gospel preaching. Just to, as you came in then, I'm just posing this question. If you're a member here, did you realize that Christ has given you authority in this church? Oh, thanks, Rick. It's good to know. No, really. I know we're elder-led and the elders lead and direct but did you know that Christ has given you authority, which then comes with responsibility in this assembly? Namely, you see as a church, and this is where we're getting to, as a church, you are under authority. We're all under the authority of Christ, and you as the members, you're under the authority of the elders. We'll discuss that this morning. But even yet, you have some authority of your own, and we'll discuss how that works. And so the charge to you all is then this, use your authority faithfully. Use your authority responsibly. Be faithful to the call to use the authority Christ has given you. And namely, we'll see it play out in these three things. First, you have the authority from Christ, and that means you need to follow your elder's leadership. 
You need to follow their guidance according to your word. If you're going to be faithful to use your authority, you should heed and listen to your spiritual leaders. Second, though, you actually have to use that authority, which is going to look like ensuring your members' faithfulness. You, as we've been talking through Matthew's gospel, you have a call, you have an accountability to your fellow members, whether they rightly profess the faith and whether they live it out. You have charge for who the members are at Grace. But then third, you also see that as a congregation, you have a charge to safeguard the gospel preaching here. You have a call to safeguard the purity of the gospel that's preached. So we're going to unpack then how the authorities are brought together in the church, the authority of the eldership, what we're called to do and how we do it, and a bit what you are called to do under your authority as a congregation. And it's going to play out in these four ways, really just spelling out what we've already seen. It's this, as a faithful church, you are to submit to the elders' teaching and leadership. And again, instead of working through Matthew's gospel, we're going to be turning all over uh, the Bible. So have your fingers ready, ready to flip and march through your Bibles. But get this, even as King Jesus, as we've noted, is given to the congregation some authority, some say, some real say in the church, he hasn't done so, he has not done so absolutely. And actually, he first gives the church leaders, her elders, to guide and lead the church according to God's word and will. So that means a faithful church, faithful church members should submit to the elders' leadership namely as they teach the Word of God. Christ has placed elders into the church. We know this from Acts chapter 20. We know this from Ephesians 4. God is the one who stations them there, that office. And He's given them real authority to lead in the church. But even as we do so, as speaking as an elder, we don't do that absolutely either. I don't just have absolute authority. My authority is derived And it's derived as we teach and preach the Word of God. That's where our authority lies. This is where our authority as elders comes from. It's not inherent in who we are. It's that we are your leaders and teachers and disciplers, lead disciplers in the Word. And so then it shouldn't surprise us that this teaching of the Word of God, that serves as the bulk of our labor and work as elders. That should come no surprise as we start to survey the pastoral letters. Paul writes to his pastoral protégés, Timothy and Titus, and gives them all kinds of instructions about what the responsibilities there are as pastors or elders. And as you go and look at 1 Timothy chapter 3, for starters, there we find the list of requirements, the character qualities that must be true in an elder's life. If you're going to be an overseer in the church, these need to be true about your life. And as you might remember, most of these all but one, are just commendable character qualities. In some sense, you'd say there's nothing really too uh, sensational about them. They are just apparently men who believe the gospel and live it out, characterized in this life that's listed here. But there is, among all of these things listed, only one competency. There's one skill an elder must have. And what is it? He must be apt to teach. You must be able to teach and minister by the Word of God. This is what an elder does. That's how we lead. That's how we exercise authority. We must teach and preach the Word. And such that as Paul instructs Timothy further, as you survey the instructions here in 1 Timothy, you just refine Paul repeatedly saying, get after it, Timothy. Get after that teaching. Get after that preaching. Get on it, brother. 
So for example, in 1 Timothy 4, verse 13, here's what we read. Paul tells his pastoral protege this, Timothy, this this acting pastor in Ephesus. He says, devote yourself to the public reading of Scripture, to exhortation and to teaching. You're not devoting yourself to drawing a crowd. You're not devoting yourself to being slick as a communicator. You're not devoting yourself to making people feel better about why they come to church. You are to be devoted, focused on, like a laser on the preaching and teaching of the Word of God. And there's so much more to be said as you continue to go through First uh, and Second Timothy. But flip over to that thunderous passage from Second Timothy chapter 4. Now we're looking at Second Timothy 4. Again, this is Paul's last letter. He's giving his final words and instructions to his greatest mentee, Timothy. And as if he could leave him with his final words, his final mission, Timothy is a pastor. Here's what you must be about. Well, here's what the apostle says. 2 Timothy 4, I charge you, Paul writes, in the presence of God and of Christ Jesus, who is to judge the living and the dead, and by his appearing and his kingdom, I mean, how can he make it more gravity, give more gravity to it than that? Well, what are you supposed to do? I think he's got Timothy's attention. Here it is. What are you going to do? Preach the word. That's your mission, Timothy. Preach the word. Be ready in season and out of season. Reprove, rebuke, and exhort with complete patience and teaching. And guess how you're supposed to do that? But by the word. That's the pastor's job. That's the elder's call. Minister by the word of God and do so even with all authority. Flip over to Titus, the next book in your Bible. Paul writes to his another pastoral protege serving on the island of Crete, and it's Titus. And Paul bolsters him and commands him this way. This is Titus chapter 2, verse 15. Paul urges Titus, declare these things, exhort and rebuke with all authority. Let no one disregard you, Paul writes. That's serious authority, isn't it? And why? Because Titus is part of this whole apostolic succession from Jesus? No. Why should Titus teach with such authority? Because he has the responsibility to teach and preach the Word of God. That's why. That's why he carries such weight as he rebukes and preaches and teaches by the Word of God. So... If this is the call of an elder, and that's the kind of authority they wield as they minister the word, how should the congregation respond to that? How should we turn and hear that? Well, first, you should honor and respect your elders, your church leaders, and you'd expect that. That's what Paul tells the Thessalonian churches in 1 Thessalonians chapter 5, when he writes this, 1 Thessalonians chapter 5, verses 12 and 13, he tells the church, we ask you, brothers, to respect those who labor among you and are over you in the Lord. I mean, over you. That, inc- that, that testifies to authority over you and who admonish you and to esteem them very highly in love because of their work. Because they labor in the word of God and teaching. 
or even back to 1 Timothy, Paul reminds Timothy that the leaders who labor in the word are to be worthy of double honor. They, they are to be compensated because they really are workers. So respect and honor your pastors, your leaders in the word. But as we read in the scripture reading this morning, turning now to Hebrews 13, that passage goes beyond just respect, I think. It sounds pretty absolute. Listen to this. Hebrews 13, 17 goes further and says, Obey your leaders and submit to them. Obey your leaders and submit to them. That's real authority. God commands through the book of Hebrews obedience and submission. Now, even still, understand, be very clear about this. Elders do not have absolute authority. Never, ever, ever obey me or any so-called spiritual leader that tells you to do something that goes against the word of God. Never disobey God to obey any man. But the implication would be this. You should trust, you should be easily persuaded and persuadable by your elders as they minister the word. You should follow them willingly. That's even the sense of these commands of obey and submit. But be persuadable. Give way to the way they're encouraging you to walk after Christ in accordance with the word. Be submissive. That should be your posture toward your elders and your pastors. Be ready to be led. Be ready to obey. Don't be a thorn in their side. Don't be one who is always objecting. No, the author of Hebrews reminds you to yield to those authorities that Christ has put over you. And when you do, things go better for you as a church. That's what he goes on to say in Hebrews 13, 17. Let them, that is the leaders, do this with joy and not with groaning, for that would be of no advantage to you. It's going to work well for nobody if you're always the thorn in their side, for you or for them. So in response, trust them, follow them. Follow their teaching of God's word. Obey them as they exhort you from God's word about how to live it out in your life. A church that does that will be a faithful one, obeying the Lord Jesus above all. And so practically this means the church is led by her elders. The elders serve as this active day-to-day leaders in the church. We guide the church. In that way, that's the right word to say that we're your pastors, we're your shepherds. We lead you. How can you best honor Jesus? How can you best obey his word? How can you live out the principles of his word in your life? We know from Ephesians chapter 4, it actually Christ gifts the church with pastors and teachers for the very work to equip you for the work of ministry. Don't oppose that. Don't go against that. Heed them. Be ready to be persuaded by them. Follow them. They have authority in the church. But even still, our authority as elders is not absolute either. And that's why we turn this morning is to say, Jesus has given you, even, the congregation, the members here at Grace, authority too. It's given you authority that might provide accountability to keep us elders in the whole church on track. And that looks like this. 
as a faithful church together, you must ensure the purity of your people's faith. Ensure the purity of your people's faith. So the church has authority on her own. Namely, as we've been talking in Matthew's gospel, you have the charge, you have the responsibility over the life of your fellow members, of the purity of their faith. You've been authorized for this. This is your responsibility from the Lord Jesus. And if you heard our message last week when we taught through Matthew chapter 18, verses 18 to 20, I think you know exactly what I'm talking about. We went over how the church has charge over her members. And the notion was found in an expression that Jesus used of binding and loosing. Remember that? And so let's revisit the two key passages where binding and loosing appears in Matthew's gospel to understand this. The first, though, if you recall, is not in Matthew 18, but Matthew 16. So look with me into Matthew's gospel in the 16th chapter. Matthew chapter 16. The scene he is, is here in the second half. Remember, Jesus has posed the question to his disciples, who do you say that I am? I, I, I've heard from you what other people think, but what do you think? Who do you say that I am, men? And Peter was the first to just go out and publicly confess and say, Jesus, you are the Christ. You are the very son of the living God. You are the Messiah. In other words, you're the Savior that we trust that we've been waiting for. Peter was the one who said it first. And to that, Jesus, in effect, says, you're right. And so then he pivots and says, I'm building a whole church on that confession. That profession of faith you just made, Peter, that's going to be the rock that builds our entire new work of God that builds the church. He goes on. This is Matthew 16, now verse 18. And I tell you, you are Peter, and on this rock I will build my church, and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. This kind of faith in Christ that Peter first expressed, that's the foundation of the church that upon which it's built. That's, that's the rallying cry, the banner that all believers come under in forming the church. That, that, that's what the true people of God rally around. And because as Jesus explains it next, it is that confession of faith, that confession serves as the key that unlocks, so to speak, access into heaven. It, it unlocks access into the kingdom of God. It, it unlocks the access, the entryway. It's the key. Faith in Christ is the key to be restored to a relationship with God. And so then that key, that confession is what grants you access into this new people of God, the church. And that's what he tells him. Verse 19, I will give you the keys of the kingdom of heaven. And whatever you bind on earth shall be bound in heaven. And whatever you loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven. Again, that expression of binding and loosing. But focusing on the binding, the beginning here, the profession of faith like that Peter made, that's what opens the door and gets people right with God and gets people into the church. We've talked about this. You notice here in Matthew 16, Peter, it seems exclusively, is given the keys to the kingdom. And why is that? Because he's the first pope or some things like this. No, not at all. Go back and listen to the messages in Matthew 16. I'll have to summarize here for time. But why, why the focus on Peter? And why is he given the keys? He was the first one to make the public confession. 
He was the first one to publicly so clearly state his faith in Christ as his Savior and his Redeemer. And then as the first confessor, kind of like the first member of the church, he's able to assess and compare all other professions of faith to his own. Because he knows by the authorization of Jesus, if your faith agrees with Peter's, then you too are in the kingdom. And we can be bound and joined together as part of this church. All those who profess like faith are bound with him as fellow confessors, fellow believers. It's part of this new thing called the church. And so you see, you come into the church by faith, by a public faith that is recognized as the same faith that's professed by the rest of the assembly. You believe like we do. We all trust Christ together. I've heard it come out of your mouth. Be bound to us. Now, as we flip to Matthew 18, we turn to the emphasis more on the loosing side. When one's let go from the church, not bound. And as you turn there, in case you haven't been with us, Jesus has been instructing us in this passage. It's where we've launched from. Instructing us as the church about what to do when there's been any kind of conflict, but most in particularly, what to do when there's been serious sin in the church. And namely, when a brother's in trouble and he won't turn from it. He's unrepentant. And we've seen, well, what are you supposed to do? The brothers who know this, they've got to call him out. Call him to repentance. Call to come to his senses. Turn from your sin. Come back to Christ. And if that doesn't work, then you take a few others with you. Call in the same thing. And if that doesn't work, then you tell the whole church. Why to gossip about him? No, but to get the whole church engaged in this rescue mission, to call sense to our brother, turn back to Christ. What are you doing? And yet even still, there comes times when he doesn't repent. And then as verse 17 of Matthew 18 makes clear, you've got to release him. You've got to treat him as an unbeliever, a Gentile and a tax collector. He's been loosed. He's now an outsider. And then the very next thing Jesus says is this in verse 18. Truly I say to you, whatever you bind on earth shall be bound in heaven, and whatever you loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven. That guy who was once bound to us, he's now been set go. He's been loosed. But who does this? Who has the power to do this? That's what we've been rehearsing in Matthew 18. We've been over this, but the you there in verse 18, when it reads, whatever you bind or whatever you loose, that you is not singular in the original language, it's plural. And we saw from verse 17, what's the plural you? It's the power of the church. The church is the you that binds and looses. You, the church, are responsible. You, the members here collectively, you are the ones authorized for this. It's your responsibility. Jesus has called you to it. I can't by myself as the pastor here bind and loose. The collective elders, we don't have the power to bind and loose our members. But we all, as the consensus of the church together, the congregation with her leaders, we together are only the ones who can bind and loose, you see. You've been authorized for this. Congregation, this is your responsibility. You are responsible for the faith, then, of your fellow members. 
It's not just the pastors. You even are responsible to receive into membership those who profess faith with us like us. And you are the ones responsible to put out those who deny the faith with a disobedient life. Jesus calls you to this. Well, what does this mean? But then you need to know who's here. (laughs) This is in your purview. Dealing with membership issues of receiving members and dismissing them, even discipline is difficult that can be. If you're a church member, that's not above your pay grade, says Jesus. So you need to know who's here. You, You need to take stock and responsibility for the spiritual life of your brothers and sisters here, your fellow members. You need to know who they are. You need to know how they're doing spiritually. You need to know how to pray for them. You need to know what their needs are. You need to consider how, what can I do to help them walk more faithfully after Christ? So don't let us announce another new member without you then stopping and thinking, hmm, I wonder how I could help them. I wonder, maybe you think things like this. Maybe you don't know if you can help them, but you can think things like, I wonder if this new member has met brother so-and-so. I bet I can make an introduction. I bet brother so-and-so would be a real encouragement to them. You see how this works? We're a family working together for the spiritual good of everyone else. And to be clear, you can't know everybody like your best friend. That's not the call. That's not what we're being asked to do. We can't do that as elders, let alone as fellow members, but we are called to be responsible. And that means we must trust fellow members who know so-and-so member better than we do or the elders who might know. And there's a mutual trust among us all. But if we do that, we create a web of care, of spiritual care for the whole body. Far greater than any one pastor, that is for sure. But realize this then. As believers come into the membership... They're not just coming under the care of the elders. They're coming of the care of, if you're a member, you. Collective with your brothers and sisters here, but they're coming under your care. Now, this also means if you, the congregation, are the ones who really then bind and loose members, then we, the elders, we need to help you with that. And we're going to unpack this a bit more next week, Lord willing, as we talk more about church membership. But as it stands now, understand, in our practice here at Grace Bible, the elders are the ones who have been doing all of the binding, all of the receiving of members. We've worked hard over the last few years through the painful times we've had to loose members, that is, on the case of discipline. And as you know, we've asked for congregation affirmation through those painful moments. But because of what we've seen in Matthew 18, so praise God, you've been faithful to do your responsibility to loose members when needed. But as it stands now, the elders are the ones doing all the receiving in. We are the ones doing all the binding. Such that what happens is you'll just arrive on a Sunday morning, and during the closing announcements, you'll hear so-and-so became a member. You're like, great. I'm not sure I've even seen them before. (laughs) I'm not sure I know anything about them except that little quote you put there. Well, we're going to change that. And I'm going to go into detail more next week. But it's going to result in a couple very minor, which maybe on the face of it seem like only formal, that is like a mere formality-like change. But we're going to make a couple minor changes to give you, the members of Grace Bible, for you to receive members, for you to bind members. And we're going to make those changes based on our study here in Matthew 18. 
So it'll be something like this. Instead of just, like in our closing announcements on a Sunday morning, hearing about who your new members are, you're going to hear about who are the new member candidates. You're going to hear about who the elders are recommending for you to receive the membership. We'll go through the same process as elders. We'll still meet with the member candidates. We'll still hear their testimony. We'll still hear about their spiritual life, about how Christ is working. And assuming as it typically does, that they, they want to join and we want to receive them. Instead of just telling you who the new members are, we're going to tell you, here's who's a new candidate for membership. You'll see their slide. You'll see the same little testimony. We're not sure on all the details. We're going to find other ways to provide maybe extended information about these member candidates. There are longer testimonies and so forth. And then we're asking you, say over a period of two weeks or whenever, to receive them into membership if you have no objections. Something like a Sunday evening fellowship, a calling for affirmation for our new members, maybe something like when we affirm new deacons or affirm elders, etc. But this would be a way, I know it might seem like a small formality because it's a very little change, but it's a way to give you a voice that you're supposed to have, according to Matthew 18 and 16, of binding these members to yourselves. And furthermore, even though we don't do that formally yet, I praise God because many of you understand and you're taking up that responsibility anyway. And as you understand that your spiritual directive is to care for your brothers and sisters, that you're not going to let one another just be anonymous and float in and out of here. But I trust that this, what might seem like a formality, is going to codify your responsibility. That this call for affirmation of new members was going to prick our conscience and remind us all that This is a Christ-given obligation to take spiritual responsibility for every new member. So may this active affirmation, active receiving of members underscore for us that as the church, we have an active responsibility to bear over the spiritual life of our brothers and sisters, our fellow members. But as they say, that's not all. That's not all the responsibility Christ has authorized you for in the church. He's also authorized or equipped you and charged you to safeguard the purity of the gospel preaching. So turn with me then then now to Galatians chapter 1. Now, at first glance, that might seem odd to you. What do you mean we as the church are the ones responsible for the gospel preaching? You guys are the ones who do all the preaching, right? Why are we as the church responsible Well, I think this illustrates the kind of authority the church has, that it's a reactionary, it's a confirming kind of authority, not so much an active one. Again, as I noted, the elders have the charge, the authority to lead out, to direct. But the church has more of a reactionary authority, an authority to confirm or counter. In that way, you might say the church is something like a veto power authority. The church has the authority. More than that, the church, you have the responsibility to stop the process if things go screwy. In the case of a false gospel being preached, you can't just sit idly by and think you're not responsible. You are. In other words, what we see here in the New Testament, you're responsible for the preaching in part that comes from this pulpit. Am I responsible? Oh, you bet. Are the elders responsible? Sure. But so are all of you. We work together on this. And to see this, join me there in Galatians chapter 1. 
For we find indeed there's this very problem among the Galatian churches. They're tolerating the preaching of a false gospel, which of course, when that's going on, you got no gospel. So as Paul opens this letter, he skips the customary encouragements and he just gets right to his rebuke. Verse 6, I am astonished that you are so quickly deserting him who called you in the grace of Christ and are turning to a different gospel. Well, just stop right there. Who is the you he's writing to? Who's deserting? Go back to verse 2. Who's he writing to? The pastors? He says he's writing in verse 2 to the churches. He's writing to the congregations there in Galatia. He's not writing to the elders or the pastors. He's writing to the very congregations themselves, directing them, because it's their responsibility. And he marvels that they, the churches, are deserting Christ and turning to a false gospel of work salvation, a kind of doing enough good things to make God love me for sure. Understand, if your relationship with God rests on the kind of good that you can muster up for God, that's not very good news at all. That's certainly no gospel. And yet, that appears to be the message they're giving air in the pulpit. That's the message they're giving airtime as they gather and preach. And so, what happens? The Apostle Paul rebukes them for it, and he guides them about how to recognize this false teaching. Look at verse 8. But even if we or an angel from heaven should preach to you a gospel contrary to the one we preach to you, let him be accursed. Notice he's charging them. You need to evaluate this. Remember the gospel, the saving gospel we gave you, and you need to test everything else that you hear by it. That first apostolic gospel has to be the grid that you analyze everything through. The gospel that Jesus preached, the gospel that Paul proclaimed, the gospel that salvation comes by faith in Christ alone, faith in Christ who died for our sins according with the Scriptures, that He was buried and then He was raised on the third day in accordance with the Scriptures. That's got to serve as the standard for you as the church, the congregation, to evaluate everything, to test everything, compare everything, try everything you hear from this pulpit. And if it doesn't line up, you better reject it. Paul warns Timothy in 2 Timothy chapter 4, and he says, There will come dangerous times when people, the churches, they will accumulate teachers to suit their own passions. So you're responsible for who you put in this pulpit or whom you make your elders or who you make your teachers. Will teachers be judged? Oh, yeah, we will. James chapter 3. Take that with trepidation. But so will you with who you listen to. The church, not just the pastor or one of the elders, you, the members, are responsible that there be to ensure there is sound gospel preaching from this pulpit, that there's sound gospel preaching down in those hallways right now, in those kids' classes, at youth groups, and in those fellowship groups, and on down the line. That's your call. Ah, but Rick, I'm no great theologian or anything. Why am I being called to this? That might be true. You might not be a trained Greek scholar, but know this, if you're a believer and you have a relationship with Jesus Christ, that means you know the true gospel, and so you have to guard and ensure that's the gospel that comes out of here and nothing else. So you may not be some professional theologian, but like the bank tellers of old, 
The bank tellers were of old were trained to spot counterfeits, not by giving them and showing them counterfeits. How were they trained? They were given real bills and only real bills. And it becomes so familiar with the smell, the way they felt, the way they looked, such that you put any counterfeit in there, that needs to get out of here. Well, you need to be that way with the gospel church. So familiar with the real deal, whenever you hear the hint of anything else, you are ready collectively to stand up and say, we will not hear another word of this. So you may not be able to parse a Greek infinitive or fully explain the intricacies of the hypostatic union, but you better well know that salvation comes by grace alone, through faith alone, and Christ alone, and have your ears tuned and ready for anything that tries to undermine that only saving gospel. So understand, we're not talking about the intricacies and subtleties of Scripture. We're talking about big picture gospel of grace issues. We're talking about opposing a false gospel that's going to say things like, oh, repentance, that's optional. Or a false gospel that's going to say, faith in Jesus, that's optional. All roads lead to heaven. No. Any preacher or message that undermines the gospel that way Church, it's your responsibility to make sure it has no voice here. Well, how might you get yourself ready to be faithful with that kind of responsibility? Well, first, you need to listen intently to what's being taught you. You need to test it by the Scriptures. And by the way, I know you do. (laughs) You come and tell me about it when you hear from me. And I'm just telling you, excel still more and don't let me get away with nothing. Or anything, I guess is the right way to say that. But most of all, get very familiar with the central message of the gospel. Memorize it. Stew over it. Talk about it constantly to your fellow members. Let the word of Christ, that gospel message, dwell in you richly. Let it be so bountiful here and growing so and flourishing so that any false seeds and weeds of division or false gospel could never grow. And happily, for this responsibility to care for the purity of our doctrine, praise God, there's a couple safeguards already in place from elders and the congregation of a generation ago put in place. In the first place, know this, your pastors and your elders, we can't just nominate and create our own more pastors and elders. Okay, we might nominate, we, we will train up men, we will disciple men, and we will suggest men to be your elders. But in the end, what needs to happen? You have to affirm them. We go through a 30-day process where you need to get all kinds of feedback and critique about whether these men are qualified according to the, the teachings of Scripture. And if they are, which so far, we're batting a thousand on that one, but those men that get put forward, you affirm them because you already know they're eldering among you. You're already submitting to them, and now you're doing formally as your elder. We can't just make more elders. That's your responsibility to affirm them. Furthermore, another safeguard already in place, any changes that would be made to our bylaws, which includes our what we teach, our doctrinal statement, you know, the elders can't just change that willy-nilly. You know, I can't just log onto our website because I have access to it and just start changing our doctrine and go, oh, I hope they never look. Right? We can't do that. Why? Because any change to our bylaws, including our doctrinal statement, it's got to go by you to a vote, actually, of the congregation. (gasps) Did I say vote? In an elder-led church, yeah. That's like the one time you vote, like with ballots and everything. It's when we change the bylaws. 
Why? Partly so we guard the doctrine we've been entrusted with. And we do that together. But that's part of how you wield the responsibility to preserve the gospel. So listen up. Listen close to what you hear. Love Christ and the gospel. Love his word. Demand that this pulpit, demand that our classes, demand all the teaching outposts of our ministry preach and teach that only true gospel and hold us to it. Christ calls you to. Finally, putting this all together, what does that mean as a faithful church? You need to work with your elders. You need to work together with us. We've said that as a church, you're under authority, the authority of the leadership, and you have the authority, though, of your own, but those authorities work in concert. And I want to show you two cases of that in Scripture. And our time is fleeting, so we will move fast. So buckle up. Here we go. Let's look at the first one. Turn with me to Acts chapter 15. I've said that the congregation, you have authority in two key realms. One's over your membership and one's over gospel doctrine. Well, in Acts 15, we have an example here of the congregation's input about gospel doctrine. This passage sets up the first church council here in Acts 15. And the debates on doctrine get right to the very heart of the gospel. How is one right with God? And Luke, the writer of Acts, sets up the scene in verse 1. He puts forward what is the false teaching. But some men came from Judea, and they were teaching the brothers, unless you're circumcised according to the custom of Moses, you cannot be saved. In other words, they were saying, yeah, belief in Jesus, that's great. But you got to go back to the Old Testament law. Then you really know that you'll have salvation. And of course, this runs right against the gospel of grace that Paul had been preaching to the Gentiles. And so that then prompts this theological debate in the church. What is the true gospel? And the debate takes place in the church here in Jerusalem. Look down to verse 6. So the apostles and the elders were gathered together to consider this matter. They're going to discuss this matter, whether you need to go back to the Old Testament law or not. But I want you to observe who's involved in this matter, in this debate. What's it say in verse 6? The apostles and the elders were gathered. This doesn't mention all the Christians. It doesn't mention the congregations. It just mentions the leaders. And as the council plays out, we hear from all the big names, Peter and Paul and James, the lead elder of the church in Jerusalem. But the point is, we only hear from primary church leaders. This is not some open debate on doctrine or some forum where anybody can contribute or text in their question. Nevertheless, as the church leaders and the elders and apostles meet, a consensus is arrived at. They studied Scripture. James, who has the last voice, he even quotes from the book of Amos. And as they come to a consensus as the leaders in the church, here's what happens next, and it's so important. Look at verse 22. Then it seemed good to the apostles and the elders, but note this, with the whole church. Here comes the church. Underscore that, with the whole church. All the Christians agreed. Yes, the elders and the apostles, they wrangled over this doctrine. They came out with clarity what was said, but then they announced that through the church. And the church here, as Luke bothers to note, affirmed and agreed. They worked in concert together. The church, the congregation, gave their consent and agreement. Yes, that's the gospel we know. They moved in concert with the church's affirmation, even over matters of doctrine, gospel doctrine. 
Let's see another example, but this time dealing with membership or discipline. Flip over in your Bible to 1 Corinthians chapter 5. Look at 1 Corinthians 5. And here we find a church leader, Paul. He's guiding the congregation to faithfully execute their responsibility and care for the membership. So Paul opens in chapter 5, and he he states the case, what's going on. He says in verse 1, It is actually reported that there is sexual immorality among you and of a kind that is not tolerated even among the pagans, for a man has his father's wife. And by verse 5, Paul tells the church to do the right thing and to remove the unrepentant man, have him delivered over to Satan. But before we get there to verse 5, we need to note a couple things. First of all, see how, even though this is the church's work, namely to discipline or loose and remove, even though that's the church's job, see what Paul's doing. He's leading and guiding them in it, isn't he? Look at verse 2. He gives clearly his opinion. And you are arrogant, he tells them. Ought you not to mourn? Let him who has done this be removed from among you. Okay, it's clear he, he knows what's going to happen or what they should do. For though absent in the body, he says, I'm present in spirit, and as if present, I've already pronounced judgment on the one who did such a thing. In other words, Paul, tell me how you really feel about this, right? You got to put the guy out. Paul's being really clear. But like we noted last time in Matthew 18, Paul doesn't have the authority to do it just unilaterally on his own. The church has to do it. He's given his counsel. He's given his clear direction. He's even telling him, you're going to be unfaithful if you don't do this. Yet he can't do it. The church must do it. Verse 4 and 5. When you are assembled, church, and that's what church is. It's assembly. It means gathering. When you are assembled in the name of the Lord and my spirit is present with the power of our Lord Jesus, you, that is the church, are to deliver this man to Satan. It's the church's responsibility. You have the authority for this. You have the keys to do it. When you are assembled, you are to deliver this man. See to it, church. Put him out. Now, I must immediately clarify something. As I know, a number of you still read from the New American Standard Bible. In the NAS, verse 5 sounds like this. Quote, I have decided to deliver such a one to Satan. And that makes it sound like Paul is the determinative factor. I have decided. But if you notice carefully as you look at your New American Standard text, those words, I have decided, are italicized. And to be clear, when you see that in your New American Standard Bible, when it's in italics, that's not for emphasis. (laughs) That means they've added those into the English to try and make it more clear for you. Only I would contend they've actually confused it and made it less clear. Every other major translation, at least the ones that I looked at, all have, you have to deliver him to Satan. Either way, even if you took the way the New American Standard rendered it, here's the point. Paul made a decision, he made a judgment, but who has to execute it? You do. He has to wait for them to gather. They are the ones who have to assemble and release him. He can't do that for them. Otherwise, he would have just done it right here in the letter. He couldn't do that. The church must do it. When they're gathered, when they're assembled, they have the keys to put out this unrepentant sinner from their members. So, yes, the church, you guys got authority. You have the authority to bind and loose, and that's a weighty matter. But you do well to listen to the counsel of your elders, your spiritual leaders. 
we work together. The elders then, as we've said, they have the authority to lead. It's active. While the church has the authority to confirm or counter. It's more reactive. We said before, the congregation is something like a veto power. That's the nature of your authority as the assembled church. Or some have pictured it like this. I think it's helpful. The elders are the ones that drive the car. They have the steering wheel. They are able to determine the direction. They have even access to the gas pedal. But you as the church, you collectively, you have access to the emergency brake. And you better yank on that brake hard if we tried driving into a gospel ditch. It's your responsibility. And so with that responsibility, maybe you feel the weight of that this morning. Understand, though, you don't have to make such decisions. You can't make such decisions on your own. You have the whole church, a fellow Christ-loving spirit and dwelt believers with you. You also have trust faithful elders and pastors that shepherd you and guide you in God's word, counseling you through all these things, such that we together can work on this, together dependent in prayer, together dependent on Christ and his spirit, together submissive to God's word, each one faithfully fulfilling the role that God has authorized us for. And so pray for us that we as your elders would be faithful guides in the scriptures, that we might together be a faithful and obedient congregation, faithful to, one, honor and submit to your leaders, two, faithful to hold one another fast to Christ and salvation and faith alone in Christ, but finally to guard the purity of the gospel preached here. We need his help and he's equipped us through one another. Let's depend together upon him. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, indeed, we come to you asking for help and favor. Uh, You have entrusted to all of us as the church a weighty, a weighty responsibility. And it's certainly one that we are not adequate for of ourselves. Uh, We need your word, which you've given us. We need your spirit, which you've given us. You've given us also the way you work through our fellow members. And again, that's a great gift. We pray that the gospel would be so rich here, the message of Christ and grace. It would just go forth with clarity in the way we live and the way we even use authority that you've given us. That would be a credit to your great work by buying your church by your blood. So in Christ's name we pray. Amen.